Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, February the 17th, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in now once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Russian military victory in a major stronghold of the Ukrainian military forces. The talks mediated by Qatar on the Gaza crisis have stalled. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology has suspended a student organization for their solidarity work for Palestine. And the United Nations High Court uh, has rejected the motion by South Africa for an emergency measure to halt the IDF assault on Rafa. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on African American History Month with segments on Claudia Jones and Dr. Huey P. Newton. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra. This is a live concert uh, from 1959. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And that was the Um Kaltum Orchestra from the North African state of Egypt uh, from a uh, concert held uh, in 1959. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast for this Saturday, February the 17th, uh, 2024. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And, of course, these are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. The Russian uh, Defense Minister, Sergei Shoigo, uh, informs, informed President Vladimir Putin about the military achievement in the town of Avdivka uh, in the Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, earlier today hailed his army's capture of the town and at Devika uh, in the Donetsk People's Republic as an important victory following a hasty withdrawal by the Ukrainian forces. The president congratulated our military and fighters on such an important victory on such a success. Uh, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told uh, the state news agency, uh, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shagu, uh, informed Putin about the achievement in a meeting at the Kremlin his ministry said in a statement. You can read uh, this article and other articles in their entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. In other stories, uh, urging an acceleration in talks to establish a ceasefire before March the 10th, which signifies the beginning of the Muslim holy month, Ramadan, the Qatari prime minister stressed that time is running out. Qatar's prime minister, Mohammed bin Abdurrahman al-Tani, uh, said at the Munich Security Conference that a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas does not seem very promising, although he expressed optimism about seeing a deal between the two parties being brokered soon. He also said the pattern in the last few days is not really very promising. We will always remain optimistic. We will always remain pushing. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the United States, the president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has suspended a student group that has held demonstrations against Israel's military campaign in Gaza as protests over the war continue uh, to rattle universities around the United States. In a video statement uh, just this last past Tuesday, Sally Hornbluth uh, said the group Coalition Against Apartheid, or CAA, held a demonstration on Monday evening without going through the university's permission process required of all groups. The protest was against the Israeli military possible ground invasion of Rafah, the city on the southern Gaza border, where 1.4 million Palestinians have fled to escape fighting elsewhere in the Muslim war. As a result, the group uh, received a letter Tuesday advising that its privileges as a student group uh, would be suspended it will not get any kind of funding that student groups normally get, nor will it be able to use MIT facilities nor hold any demonstrations on campus. I want to be clear, suspending the CAA is not related to the content of their speech, Cornbluff uh, said. I fully support uh, the right of everyone on our campus to express their views. However, we have, we have to be clear, reasonable time, place, and manner policies for good reason she indicated the point of these policies is to make sure that members of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology community can work uh, 
learn and do their work on campus without disruption. We also need to keep the community safe. And finally, uh, the top uh, United Nations court uh, on Friday rejected a South African request to impose urgent measures to safeguard Rafa in the Gaza Strip, but also stressed that Israel must respect earlier measures imposed late last month at a preliminary stage in a landmark genocide case. The International Court of Justice said in a statement that the perilous situation in Rafa demands immediate and effective implementation of the provision measures uh, that is ordered uh, uh, that is ordered on January 26th. It said no new order was necessary because the existing measures are applicable throughout the Gaza Strip, including Rafa. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is a electronic uh, international press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, Worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February uh, the 17th, uh, 2024. Just go uh, to our website at um, the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
The Sound of Rotary Connection uh, with the track entitled Paper Castle. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, February 17th, uh, 2024. Right now we want to move into our African American History Month uh, commemoration segment. This uh, segment features uh, a discussion about the lifetimes and contributions of Claudia Jones, a African-Caribbean leader uh, from uh, the uh, Allen Nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, Claudia Jones was born in 1915 in Trinidad. Uh, She immigrated to the United States and became an activist uh, with uh, the uh, Communist Youth Movement, the Communist Party. She did turn organizing. Uh, Later, uh, she was forced to leave the United States where she went to Britain, where she founded uh, the first... uh, Caribbean Carnival there uh, during uh, the mid-1960s. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, an interview with uh, Carol Boyce Davies, a scholar who has devoted a tremendous amount of work uh, on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Claudia Jones. Let's listen in to this report. Carol Boyce Davies, welcome to Tell a Friend. Good morning. Well, now, I just morning. I just say good ever, good whatever. Now, so. for my audience who may not have come across your work, you are a distinguished professor at Cornell University, and you're also the author of the seminal Left of Karl Marx, which I have here. And, yeah, we've both got our copies here. And I wanted to use this episode today to talk, first of all, about your iconic book, but also talk about the lady behind it, Claudia Jones. But before we get into talking about her, could you talk to me about the idea um, of this book and your process in writing it? Well, it, it um, developed organically, and I, I love to say it's actually the spirit of Claudia Jones actually pushed this book all the way to the end. But I didn't start off like that in, in terms of an academic project and then you begin to do the archival work and schematize it and then go all the way to the end. It sort of came together almost like a quilt of different pieces. So that's what I want you to imagine when you think of it. Um, and simply because um, something like 1988, and that's, people like you are probably not even born yet, um, I met Buzz Johnson, who had just then published a small book uh, on Claudia Jones, and its title was I Think of My Mother, which is actually a line uh, from a quote from Claudia Jones talking about how she got to be an activist because of what happened to her own mother. And um, he gave me that book, I bought it, um, and I took it back with me uh, to the United States. Um, and then teaching Caribbean um, women, Caribbean, sorry, teaching Caribbean literature, teaching black women writers. For some reason, I would always go back to it and select a little piece of it to use in my teaching process. Um, and then I was asked to be part of a black feminist seminar at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, they were inviting people who were quite 
um, well known as feminist, black feminist theorists. I'm talking about people like Bell Hooks. I'm talking about people like Deborah McDowell and others. Um, and um, because I was invited and I worked on the Caribbean and the diaspora broadly defined, I thought that it would make better sense for me if I did something that looked at the black feminist um, scholarship, but not in the U.S. linear format, but looked at what else was there. And I went back to the Claudia Jones um, book. And of course, going back to that um, uh, book by Buzz Johnson, and then using it to then do additional research, I discovered there really was not much written on her at all. That was really quite shocking. And at that point, when I started to dig then and find additional material, there was only like a clip file in the Schomburg with one um, Schomburg Library, the famous library in New York, where her um, papers are now housed. Um, and there was only a clip file by Robin D.G. Kelly, um, which was an, uh, an entry in an encyclopedia. And then a small article, which I think I've reproduced in the book, newspaper article about her um, being... Um, incarcerated or released from incarceration, one of those two. And then that was about it. And I was amazed at that. So after that, I was on a sort of journey whenever I would go to London. And I went many times with my university as part of the, um, their study abroad program in London. Each time I would go, I would do a little bit more digging. So this is what I mean about quilt work. So the archival work was not ever consistent in that way, but each time I would go to London, Every couple of years, I would do a little bit more work. And I, basically, every time I would talk to people and ask about her, they would say, well, she's very next to Karl Marx in Highgate. Um, so, and I didn't go the first time because I had taken my children with me to London and we were doing other things. And I was also teaching that London program and didn't leave a lot of time to do other things. Um, but um, eventually, the next time I went, I decided to go up to Highgate uh, to look for this um, famous bust of Karl Marx. And, I, and that I recount this in the book. I go and I'm on the tour in Highgate because, as you know, Highgate has these tours. And they take you to the old part of the cemetery, 15th century and so on. And eventually I asked the tour guide, but where is Karl Marx? Because I thought eventually we would get to the Marx bust. And he said, oh, no, it's on the new side of Highgate. So I abandoned the tour and I make my way over there and then come across this massive Marx bust, 11 feet tall or whatever. And then, of course, I wanted to see his bust, of course, in terms of who he is. But I wanted to see that plaque on the ground next to Marx, which I identified as left of Marx. And that's where the title comes from. So it's not arguing that she's more radical than Marx or whatever, but she's positioned left of Marx as you stand and confront the Marx bust of Highgate. And then, of course, the more research I did on that, I discovered that this was deliberate, placing her there. So that in, in my view, and I see this in the text, it sort of opens up Marxism in a different way than the sort of fundamental dogmatic Marxism that people receive and are turned off by, but in fact looks then at how black women are positioned in uh, Marxism. So I began then doing that short piece, as I, as I was saying at University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I talk about her, and then gradually I would do different portions of Claudia um, in different ways. And it all comes together in this large book uh, manuscript that, that became left of Karl Marx. So it's, an, I mean, I tell people doing um, 
scholarship. I'm not a historian, and I'm not claiming that I did history, but I did enough historical work to be able to um, write a really substantial piece on her, which engages her from many different angles. So it's not a biography in the classic sense where it begins with her early life and goes through, you know, the different stages, but it picks up different pieces of her life. So, for example, the deportation chapter deals with the, 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 um, the um, legal questions that have to do with how she was deported, what happened, and why. And actually enrolled and did a master's in international law um, just before doing it in part because I think I wanted to be able to write this in a really credible way. So I actually got a master's in international law, um, LLM, um, in order to do this piece on her deportation. So I put in a lot into, into doing it. And of course did other things, but this part of it is, is definitely there. So if you walk with me through the introduction, you will see the steps. But as I said, it's also very spiritual because each time I was trying to find another piece, I'd be in London looking for something, looking for a person, and then I would run into somebody who worked with her like I did with Ricky Cambridge, who was her life assistant. And he was able to give me all that information and help me get to um, her, um, the source of material which Diane Langford kept um, in Hampstead, which then became an amazing leap forward because when I met Diane uh, Langford, she, um, I went to her house and she had two boxes open with all this material spilling out of it with all this Claudia June stuff that she was showing me that she kept in these two boxes, which she had found by going through her partner, Manchander's um, uh, material after he passed. And um, Manchander was Claudia's lover and partner in London as well. And then Diane married him subsequently. Uh, their daughter is in London as well, Panther Manchander, Claudia Manchander, named after Claudia Jones. So Diane showed me these two boxes, and I was like so amazed that she didn't know what to do. What do I do with it? Because she said people kept coming, borrowing pieces, taking bits and pieces out of it to be used. The BBC did a special program um, where they took the boxes and then brought them back. Um, Marika Sherwood, who did a book called, uh, edited a book called Claudia Jones, Their Life in Exile, also did the same thing, took them on her bicycle and rode through town. So eventually, Diane wanted to know what to do, and I suggested the Schomburg, back to the Schomburg, because the Schomburg is in Harlem, and it's the major archive of black materials, and it, I thought it would be a good place for the Claudia Jones material for two reasons. Claudia spent most of her life in Harlem, and she's actually from Harlem, technically, before being in London. Um, she grew up in Harlem after coming to, to the U.S. and lived there all her life, up until being deported. And then that she was deported, and it was really, for me, significant that she come back to Harlem. And her bringing back her material to the Schomburg was bringing her back to Harlem for me. And I was entrusted um, by Diane Langford to do that. And I, uh, you know, it was like a scary thing. I bought two huge suitcases and put all the material in it and then flew with it to um, the U.S. I was working at Northwestern University at the time. I had a, an assistant help me organize it into categories, scan it, save some of it, and the rest of all of it went to the Schomburg after that. So that's the pathway to doing the book. So each of the chapters captures one of those moments. 
I did the chapter on poetry when I was in Trinidad on a Fulbright. Uh, and I was looking for Claudia Jones material then, like where she was from, where she was born, and so on. And I was going through the poems that she wrote while she was incarcerated. And I presented that at the University of the West Indies at the Center for Gender and Development. So that's where that comes from. Um, each of the pieces, definitely the introduction and the opening chapters, which talk about deporting the radical black subject, are pieces that I wrote for this particular text. And then, of course, the FBI files, getting the FBI files in that massive thousand-page document was another thing. And that's the last chapter, because I was looking at how the FBI constructed her and then how she constructed herself. And those two stories came together amazingly for me. And I still use it when I present the way the FBI would talk about her, and they would have um, agents studying her, and the agents would come back and say something like, all we found was that the subject works on black and Negro, Negro people and women. That's what the word they would use back then. And then now people work on black women like there's no problem. But back then, anybody who worked in anything that looked like that was considered leftist. She, though, was in the Communist Party. So she got additional scrutiny because of that. But keep in mind, Martin Luther King Jr., Robeson, uh, almost all the, the entertainers at that time, were under inquiry or subjected to um, um, red baiting um, and all kinds of ways in which the U.S. constructed this communist bogeyman. So the people who were actually communists, you can imagine, then were further um, uh, set upon by the U.S. government, and she would definitely be one of them. I'll stop there. That's no. quite a introduction, but it covers all of the pieces. I, w I wanted to ask you, um, mm -hmm. so there you mentioned, well, I think I'll introduce Claudia Jones. Um, so she was uh, a radical black activist, journalist, campaigner, and her life story is really one that spans the globe, as you were mentioning, from Port of Spain, Trinidad, where she was born, to Harlem, and then eventually to London. Uh, she's really a global figure. But before writing about her, did you have any apprehensions about writing uh, about a black radical figure? Because even today we see there's a lack of black radical voices. Did you have any apprehensions? Did not at all, and probably naively so. <laughs> As I said, I had done a book um, actually called Out of the Kumbla, Caribbean Women and Literature, um, which was probably an edited collection, one of the first collections that really dealt with the fact that there was a body of material called Caribbean women's writing, right? Now that's the whole field. Um, and in doing that, one of the things I said in the introduction, that basically I knew about the Caribbean writers who are women by that point, right? Whether it's Sylvia Winter, whether it's Paul Marshall, whether it's whoever, Jean Reese, the whole range, right? Dionne Brand and so on. But I did not know the intellectuals who would be that counterpart. I did not know a female C.L.R. James then properly. So in my head, um, I was somewhat always imagining those people existed, but did not have the, the ability then to find them. So coming upon Claudia was that she was that person for me. And I still see her as the intellectual equivalent of C.L.R. James. And the hardcore Jamesian scholars um, and leftist activists sometimes you know, would question that. But Claudia died at a very young age. 
Um, and imagine James lived till he was almost, what, 88, 90 something. So essentially, James had another 40 years after Claudia Jones died to, um, after, in terms of how much time was put in after she died, um, to really build and amass his intellectual career. And that's the point I want to make. So for me, she is an intellectual equivalent of, of C.L.R. James. Um, she was also, he, they had similar kinds of issues, being deported and so on, living in the U.S., living in London. Um, and people often would ask me during presentations if they would ever have met. And it seems they never really met, but they were on one, they were on a panel together, according to Donald Hines, um, in support of Hurricane, a hurricane that had happened in the Caribbean. But they were never friends. And I talked to Laming, George Laming, the writer, about this when I interviewed him. And he said they actually moved in different circles, totally. Claudia was more the sort of activist grounds, um, grounding kind of person who worked with community, doing all this journalism and stuff. And James was much more the intellectual, scholarly kind of figure. So she was on the ground and he was doing other kinds of things. And I, I want to start right from the beginning. What were the early uh, experiences in Trinidad that led Claudia Jones to begin um, fighting against and uh, fighting against causes, uh, issues such as racism, sexism, and classism? Was there anything in her early childhood that sparked that activist light inside of her? I would say no. She came to the U.S. when she was eight years old, um, and she was part of that. Um, first big wave of Caribbean migration to the United States, which, in which people settled in Harlem and then later on in Brooklyn. Um, I, my point in, in um, bringing um, that movement up um, is that she identifies her family as sort of falling on sort of economic hard times, necessitating their movement to the United States. In that move to the United States, she leaves the Caribbean, um, and I went to her house in Belmont, so I, I saw, you know, the area where she lived and grew up, a little narrow lane called Casabon Lane. Um, and actually, we did a ceremony there um, a few years ago. Moving from the Caribbean, where in the, as you know, in the Caribbean, there's a much more communal, familial sort of relationships and so on, to Harlem would have been a real major shock. So it was not so much the what she was experiencing in the Caribbean that would have been given given to her the ability to create a kind of political identity because she was eight, but really that migratory journey, one, and two, ending up in Harlem in a time where it's not like it is today where Harlem has become gentrified, but it was a place where it was there were tenements, people were poor, they weren't living well, it was in the middle of the Great Depression and so on. So she comes into Harlem on, in two critical notes. Right at that point in 1924 when she arrives there, it's the heyday of what is now called the Harlem Renaissance, where you have jazz, where you have music, you have some dancing, poetry, and so on, and people dressed and walked around Harlem very elegantly, even though they were poor. But they were also living very difficult lives. So essentially race then, and, and we still see those twin representations of race on the one hand, negation and, and objection and so on, but on the other, the ability to take that same objection and negation and make it be beautiful and do what one can with it. So she would have witnessed that in Harlem. So she's seeing poverty. She was seeing her mother working like crazy, 
um, doing um, sewing in, in one of those startup factories where they had a lot of women doing uh, working in garment districts in heat and without a lot of support. But also her father was working as a super in a building and they were living in the basement. It, as a super in the building, that's where the, that's where the person, that is the person who manages the technical aspects of that building, you know, the plumbing and so on. And normally they would give them a be an apartment in the basement. She indicates that the apartment that they lived in was very poor and there was an open sewer that ran right in, through it or in front of it or very close to it. So she was um, therefore very sickly as a child and became ill um, and, and actually was, was institutionalized at, at one point uh, for that. And this illness would affect her life consistently. Some people indicate rheumatic fever, which damages the heart. They also indicate tuberculosis, which also gives you lung issues. So you can see that she grows up then um, coming out of poverty in the Caribbean, but much more communal life to now urban, poor um, New York environment. Cold, think about the weather, it's going to be cold. It's not going to be warm like the Caribbean, right? Um, where people give you fruits and mangoes and stuff if they, if they know that the children need food to New York where you don't get all those things. So she had to recreate herself. So for me, it's the journey, the migratory journey, and then experiencing, she identifies it very strongly, Jim Crow racism in the United States at the same time and economic poverty. And then she says growing up as a young woman, she would listen to the street corner speakers in Harlem. And anybody who has studied that period will tell you that at that point you would have this whole logic of people standing at street corners, just as they do in Hyde Park uh, in, in uh, London, but standing on street corners and talking about black experience, black conditions. Marcus Garvey did it. Another guy named Hubert Harrison had done it before Marcus Garvey. And according to all reports, sort of educated Marcus Garvey about how to do this. And in fact, the story is the first time Marcus Garvey did it, he almost fell off the, street, off the, off the soapbox and so on. So she would listen to these street corner speakers, but she found the ones who were from the Communist Party offered the best analysis of the conditions of black people. So she was more attuned to think their arguments were the ones that would be offering her the best explanations of her own family life, her own poverty, what happens to her, why she's ending up from, in New York from the Caribbean, and all of the other aspects of her life as a young black girl growing up in Harlem at the time, who she said was not even able to go to her own graduation because she didn't have the dress to wear. So poverty and all of those questions and how to explain that poverty leads her to the Communist Party very early. So she joins officially when she's like 21 years old. But normally when you join, you would have been exposed to them before. They would have been cultivating you. So she was around them when she was like 18, straight out of high school. And then from there, develops, um, becomes a journalist um, in various Communist Party organs and then moves up the, the ladder to become the person that we know today. So it was a very organic um, development for her. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in her um, affiliation with the Communist Party because today in America and you could argue in the Western world, communism is still something that is... Um, Mm -hmm. People are apprehensive about it. There's a lot of reservations about it. When she was witnessing these communist speakers in Harlem, and when she eventually joined, 
what was the attitude in America at the time? It was really harsh because this is what was called the McCarthy um, period. And, uh, and actually, during, so she would have had to be very determined as a person to really take this pathway, um, this analytical pathway. And I have really wonderful photographs of her with young um, communists in, um, at, a, at a forum in Vassar College in upstate New York, where they were doing a kind of youth forum, youth organizing forum. Um, so it would have been difficult, yes. But it was at the same time, different from now, you still had an active Communist Party USA. And they were doing a lot of street organizing and so on. So they, it, although you have a dis, um, the disparaging of communism, at the same time, they were the ones who were actively doing a certain kind of work. She mentions the Scott Burboys trial. The Scott Burboys were nine young boys in Alabama who were accused falsely of raping two white women in a train car, boxcar. You know, those trains that in those days people would jump on the train in those carriages, not the seated part, but the place, part of the train that carried luggages and products and so on. Um, and they would go from city to city looking for work, right? She mentions um, this Boys trial where these young men were almost lynched and were, some of them as young as 12 years old, were tried repeatedly um, for raping these women, and it was not true. And eventually, the woman, one of the women, um, admitted that it wasn't true at all. But the significant aspect about that, it was the Communist Party's legal arm that did all of the organizing work to help the Scottsboro boys. Because at that time, keep in mind the NAACP, although it was the primary black organization, it often did not have the wherewithal to do all of the kind of work they needed to do that. So the Communist Party lawyers were the ones who did a lot of that work in the South to help free the Scottsboro Boys. And they were often organizing in New York City and talking about what they were doing and so on. So she credits the Scottsboro Boys trial and the Communist Party's work on that as really being formative. So the point, in, in response to your question, the point is that, yes, the Communist Party was still being demonized. But I think it's worse now. Because following the McCarthy period and the witch, communist witch hunts and so on, what was put in place in the United States was a punitive formation of United States citizenship based on not being a communist. This is really critical. This is why even with Bernie um, Sanders, who ran for office, even just saying he was a democratic socialist, which many people don't see as a socialist in the classic sense, but more somebody who believes in a sharing of resources in a democratic uh, social system gets equated with Venezuela, gets equated with any attempt that people have to really, or Cuba, to think about creating a socialist society. Not at all true. So basically what was put in place following this McCarthy period in the 1930s and all of the communist red baiting and so on was an equivalence with U.S. citizenship and being anti-communist. And I say this with, with clarity, for sure, because when you become a United States citizen, you have to fill out that citizenship form. And two of the last questions ask you precisely if you have ever been a member of the Communist Party, which is the exact question which was asked during the McCarthy period. So they, they, and most Americans, if they're naturalized citizens, would know this. But if they were birth citizens, born citizens by birth, they don't know this. So they come alive and they're born into a culture which already is formed to be hating of socialism. So 
So back then, socialism was still seen as, or communism was still seen as a legitimate political place that one could have an identity. But then you have the demonizing, then you have the witch hunts and so on. So she was part of a group of black leftists, black communists, who were quite confident about what they were doing until this happened. And they were identified as sort of the kind of radical chic group that dressed a certain way and looked a certain way and moved through the United States in a certain kind of way, which she was part of, which is ironic, isn't it? That I think it has gotten worse in this contemporary period. Now, how many uh, black women were active in radical politics at the time? Because I can't imagine that they were full of uh, black radical women speaking out. Was she in a minority? She was not, and this is a really important point to make. There were women ahead of her that she she was influenced by. Uh, and in my work, I talk about some of them in, in the chapter. Mark, um, the couple of those women um, identified very deliberately, and she in many of her writings also identified several of them. So it's really important to talk about the fact that she was part of a group. There was also another larger group called Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was organized around that same time and which had a number of other black women um, who were similarly involved um, in, in, in that process. For example, a woman named Louise Thompson Patterson was very much involved as well in that kind of organizing at that time and actually went to Russia with a group of people who were going to be um, actors in a, in a, in a movie in, in the Soviet Union and ended up not happening. So there were women ahead of her. She mentions a woman named Ward White who was an organizer and did a lot of work in Buffalo organizing garment workers and so on. And there were others after her. So basically she was part of a group. Um, and it's really important to say that. There's another uh, woman named Vicki Garvin who followed her and then says that Claudia Jones was her major advisor. Vicki Garvin is somebody who one of my grad students is doing uh, work on. Um, she ends up in um, Ghana and then ends up in China, um, doing work in, in a number of cities in China. So there were women ahead of her, there were women along with her, and there were women after her who were active. Um, not huge groups, of course, but a cadre, let's say, of women who were doing that kind of organizational work. And I spent some time talking about those women in, um, in, in my work. There's another really nice essay that a young woman from Michigan State wrote called Running with the Reds, where she talks about precisely that. And I, that is a reference in my work about that that somebody can look at later on. Now, in her journalism that she was doing, whilst uh, a member of the Communist Party and whilst uh, being active in Harlem, she talks about race, she talks about class, and she talks about gender. And in the book, you talk uh, about her journalism is mentioning the triple oppression that black women face. Now, why was it important for Claudia Jones to raise awareness of this triple oppression? You know, what I I love about that um, and that question is that she always uh, foregrounded the identity of being workers, being women, and being Black. Back then, they used the word Negroes. So women, Negroes, and, um, and workers. Um, because those were her identities. She carried those identities. And as I mentioned, when she listened to the street corner speakers talk about these questions, I am sure she was inquiring enough 
to want to know where does she fit into this whole framing of things. And with her own identity and then her mother's identity, she saw then that women had a particular experience that was a little bit different than the men uh, and the white women who also um, suffered in different kinds of ways from patriarchal um, um, oppression. So for her, and this she precedes, um, and one of the things I make, uh, points I make in this work, and I assert really um, repeatedly, she precedes Angela Davis in that formation of women, race, and class. She is the person who really talks about that very early, and Angela Davis actually cites her on this. So it's not like Angela Davis hid the fact that this was coming from somewhere. She, it was coming from Claudia Jones. So now people talk about intersectionality and so on. I don't buy that fully as an argument for Claudia because she was looking at it in a different kind of way. She was looking at the layers, the ways in which these identities get layered and function, intersected or not, um, in different kinds of contexts. So for her, she uses a concept called super exploitation of the black woman and actually develops that to talk about the fact that black women are, are multiply exploited by different groups who are also exploited. And that's where she gets this logic of super exploitation from. So that all workers then in society are exploited because of their position, the way they have to sell their labor and so on. But then those same workers end up also being able, because of where black women are located, to also exploit those black women. And this explains for her why black women give so much labor and receive so little remuneration. So that this is the super exploitation thesis that she's talking about. Keeping in mind that black women may work long hours in somebody else's home as a domestic worker, as a cleaner in a hotel or whatever. And then when they go home, they also have to work again in their home. They also have to take care of children. They also have to do household work. So that that length of, of, of labor that um, the black woman puts in into any given situation renders her super exploited by the dominant society because of all the layers which then exploit her labor. So there are very few black women who are able to live those kinds of lives where they're not victims of that super exploitation. And that's the point that she makes really well. And I liked it because it explains uh, so much in terms of how um, black women are positioned in society the fact that black women still make, um, at one point it was 67 cents of every dollar white men made, and I believe now it's something like 72 cents uh, of every dollar that a white man makes. So that essentially you're not really occupying a, an equal level of, of access to the resources of any given society when you position as a black woman in that society. Now, many of her writings, which... Uh I came across uh, being a history student and uh, I studied some of her stuff. You find out that the authorities at the time, they were, you know, fascinated by her work, but not out of a fascination or interest in what she was saying, but out of um, a desire to stop her in that sense. And the FBI had meticulous files where they were collecting all of her writing. Could you talk to me about why the state was so anxious about Claudia Jones? I know that is, you know, I, I still, I still have to ponder that. But one of the conclusions I came uh, up with very early 
is what she said. She argues that if black women were to move politically, and this is in an essay she wrote called An Answer to the Neglect of the Problems of the Negro Woman, and also another piece called We Seek for Equality, published, what I believe, in 1948. Um, in those essays, she really talks about the fact that if black women move, the entire population moves. So for Claudia, she felt that in the Communist Party, their um, neglect of black women as full participants in those movements rendered then a whole population of women outside of um, being really fully used in terms of their capabilities, right? So for her, she, I think she saw, and then she spent in 1948 as well, quite a lot of time going around the country organizing women's groups as the secretary of the Women's Commission, working with a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was the president of the Women's Commission of the Communist Party USA. And their point was simply that one had to organize black women. And if you organize black women fully, then you have a, an amazing force that could really challenge a lot of the ways in which both gender, race, and class were being, um, gender, race, and class were being um, um, understood and then positioned in uh, dominant society. So I think it's that sort of capture, capturing that sort of um, alliance that the dominant society didn't really want to see coming together, that black women now would be empowered and able to move. And I, I keep arguing that when black women take a particular political position and advance it in a particular in a certain kind of way, it really has that sort of impact on the larger society because women are benefiting from that, men are benefiting as well, and the larger society also moves further. So it's, I think those are the kinds of things that the state saw as um, causes for them to really keep her under surveillance. And they actually say that, that um, because she was in such leadership in the Communist Party, she was um, targeted for closer surveillance by the FBI and, and they pursued her relentlessly. I found even in, in getting the, the FBI files for her that they were still keeping tabs on her when she was in London. So some of the entries are after she left, you know, it's not that you leave U.S. borders and go to another country and then they forget about you. They kept following and knowing what she did. And in fact, the last, one of the last entries in the FBI files is that she had died, meaning that they don't have to really pursue her anymore. So just think about what that means. And when I saw her work on um, speaking out against the Korean War, she would speak against capitalism, she would speak against imperialism. And interestingly enough, whenever she was taken to court, they wouldn't even read her work which goes to show you the power of what she was saying, uh, that there was so, uh, the state was so fragile that they wouldn't even read her work. And okay. I was wondering, um, could you talk to me about her movement to Britain and uh, the decisions that led to her deportation? Yeah, I like that point that she made about wouldn't read her work because when she goes to court, and I have a, um, that entire speech published in another book called Claudia Jones Beyond Containment, which was published by IABA in Banbury. And it's, um, she says in that speech, you dare not think that black women can think and speak and write. And she mentions the fact that they were not reading her work. 
So she was really aware of, of that um, way in which they did not study her. But my point was that in, in talking about her saying that, was that she was also claiming herself as an intellectual subject, that she don't think that we can read and think and write. She's claiming all of those as thoughts, you know, being able to do analysis and think through, write, being able to express it, and also read and being able to, to, to do it. And she did all of those things well from all accounts. So she um, was tried and then sentenced to a year and a day in Allison, West Virginia, the federal penitentiary for women. We are also another person, famous person, uh, uh, was there after her, Billie Holiday, the, the singer. Um, and while she was in prison, which is really the, the craziness about that, there are also a number of other left communist women from Puerto Rico, Lolita Lebron, and a few others, also in prison at the same time. And she writes poems for one of them, Blanca Canales Torestola, who was the woman who had declared Puerto Rican independence um, in a city called Jayuya, and then was, of course, tried in the United States and incarcerated as well. So she was in a place, she was incarcerated in a time when a number of other women were also incarcerated, and she became friends with some of them, and they were all in prison at the same time, which is really strange to even contemplate. But she does only 10 months in prison because of her health and the prison food and the salt in the diet and so on. So she's released, but then she's deported directly after. She's released in October, and then she tries to have space of her deportation, and there was talk about sending her back to Trinidad and Tobago, but they did not. They sent her to London because I gather they felt that they could keep better tabs on her as she went to London. Going back to Trinidad at that point, they felt just before independence um, happened in the Caribbean, they were not going to put a full, fully trained communist in the middle of that because they felt it would like have that sort of impact on the society at large. So London was the place that she ended up being. And I thought that, in a way, um, going to London for her then became kind of a, a choice of exile. Um, so I didn't read it so much as like a loss, but actually as a place to gain a whole different international um, reputation and, and um, community and rep and. and and um, a sphere of activism, I, I should say. So I am really, I didn't see it as a negative thing, as a loss. She went on a cruise ship, not a cruise ship, a, a line, an ocean liner, the equivalent of what would be a cruise ship, where they have to dress up and go down for dinner every day and so on. And then she arrives in London, but she then has to re get reclimatized, get a place to live. She was met by Caribbean people who helped her out. And then she um, is also hospitalized. So she would have several illnesses while she was in London um, and was under doctor's care. But from all accounts, she never stopped. She kept working and so on. But not too long after getting to London, she arrived in December 1955, she is able with Amy Ashwood Garvey to found the West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News later on. And from there, be able to launch a series of other um, projects including the first carnival and including also this group called CACO, Community of Afro-Asian uh, organ and Caribbean Organizations, which did a number of things like marches against immigration bar and all kinds of other things. And then from there also be able to travel to the Soviet Union, to travel to China, to travel to Japan. So this is what I mean about 
leaving the United States and is doing domestic dramas, she gets a much larger international audience, meets the Chairman Mao um, in, in China, and there's a whole other, a lot of other work. And then, of course, dies that same year. One of my graduate students from China has been working on this China period, and I'm really happy about that for, uh, in, for his dissertation, that when, he, um, when he's finished with it, it should be a nice contribution to knowledge and scholarship. Richard, why aren't West Indians applying to come to this country in any numbers? Well, I would say that uh, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act has uh, acted as a deterrent against their coming. And in fact, that was the intention of the act, which uh, many of us considered a colour bar bill. Now, there was a good deal of ill feeling about this act when it was introduced. Has that ill feeling among West Indians died down? Uh, what is important to recognize now, it's not so much they're feeling directed against the act as such, because they're responsible, the act is law, they're fighting to repeal it, but the consequences of the act, uh, namely uh, the fact that the population at large, because of the whole propaganda against the West Indians, uh, regard them as second-class citizens, and they themselves, on the job, in virtually every sphere of life, find this difficulty uh, since the immigration act in terms of discrimination, uh, colour housing, etc, etc. I wanted to talk about her activism in London because something that I found when looking at, you mentioned CLR James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, and a lot of the black activists that came afterwards, London became a sort of hub for the black intelligentsia. They all kind of congregated at the same time. And during this time, you also had anti-colonial leaders from Africa, such as Joma Kenyatta, who uh, she was acquainted with. What was it about London that drew all of these activists together? Because it's quite a remarkable time for all of them to be at the same place at the same time. Well, you know, the Calypsonian Kitchener has a strong London as a place for me. So you have the Windrush generation of people migrating, right? And then uh, along with that, the students, student organizations with people like Stuart Hall coming later and a whole range of others. But all of the people who would become um, leaders of their home countries were students and members of an organization called WASU, West African Students uh, Organization or Union, WASU. Um, and they would be um, people that they were meeting and circulating and socializing with at that time. So that's very significant. But why London? It's, it's so um, clear um, that London, under, under colonialism, British colonialism in particular, you would have the sort of construction of England as this, the mother country and as the center of all knowledge, beauty, brilliance, and all of those things that you would have with colonialism, and therefore the desired location if you wanted to do anything um, uh, intellectually, creatively, educationally, and so on. Keep in mind that back then in the Caribbean and in Africa as well, often they did not have sufficient high school even or university level education. There was a, 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 a something called the Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture in, in the Caribbean, um, which then became University of the West Indies. Um, but from, if you wanted to become a writer, as James did and so on, 
and many of the other people like George Laming and, and others, the idea was that if you wanted to publish, if you wanted to be anybody, you would have to go to England. So colonialism, that's one of the byproducts of colonialism that Stuart Hall talks about because he says, you know, we are here because you were there. So basically they held up London and England as the place to be. And therefore, there's people who were thinking ahead, who were thinking creatively, who were smart enough to get into the schools that they should get into, went to those places. So you end up with a conglomeration then of intellectuals from different parts of the world, creative people from different parts of the world, all meeting at the same time. And then being able to talk about the nature of their condition in London, still running into racism, remember, and also what was happening back home. The same thing happens in Paris. This is how you end up with the Negritude generation and people like France Fanon and others, because they were told in the French-speaking colonies that if you wanted to be a proper Frenchman or Frenchwoman, generally French man, you had to go to Paris. You had to speak French like the French, and you had to go to Paris. And then once you did all of those things, you master the language, the intellectual fields, and so on, then you'll be recognized as a fully French-made subject. Not so? And then they get there and discover there's still racism. So they get to Paris, they get to London, they discover there's still racism. So it's out of that that somebody like Franz Fanon would write Black Skin, White Mass, where he has in that section called The Lived Experience of Blackness, that confrontation with the white gaze, which looks at you with contempt. And he says, you know, the, he sees the, 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 the man on the train sees who is himself in a way, sees the little child on the train who says, mom, look a Negro, look a nigger. And then he's looking at me and I'm afraid. And, and Fernand is like, I'm a, he's a, she's afraid? How can, you know, where did this come from? How do I get positioned then as this black subject, abject, you know, negated position in this certain kind of way. The same thing is happening in London. It's just that Fanon is writing about this in French, right? So in London, these people come and they're like supposed to be part of the empire and welcome and so on. And then people don't want to give them housing and they don't want to really allow them to be fully um, members of the community and so on. So they're running into race. They're running into all kinds of housing discriminations and so on. So somebody like Claudia, who comes from the U.S., having seen the same thing, is able then, once she forms, uh, founds the West Indian Gazette with Amy Ashwood Garvey's help, to now become the kind of person who offered aid, who offered assistance to people who were having those experiences that she recognized. So according to the people I interviewed, she was seen as the kind of godmother of the community, and people went to her for all kinds of reasons. And interestingly, in the West Indian Gazette, the first um, um, issues of it that I looked at, she begins to use it as a kind of space to really create black community because black businesses were able then to like start advertising, people making and selling products were able to put them in those, um, in, in those portion, advertising portions of the newspaper. But also she creates this carnival and the carnival was, again, meant it had a beauty queen section. It had all kinds of other interesting components meant to showcase and highlight the beauty of black experience in London at the time. So all of those things then are taking place. And yes, she's meeting people and there are wonderful photographs of her with Martin Luther King Jr., with W.B. Du Bois, with Chetty Jagan, with all, Jumo Kenyatta, with all of these people that she ends up running into and meeting because of the kind of work she's doing as a journalist as well. Now, fast-forwarding 
to, uh, if we fast forward to today and look at the way that Claudia Jones is remembered, do you think people actually engage with the ideas uh, that she advocated for, or do you think people just engage with the fact that she was an activist? Because I, uh, the reason I ask this is because we see Vogue magazine uh, doing a profile. I heard, yeah. Claudia Jones, and often when we look at Black history in the UK, her name pops up, but yet her ideas, her anti-capitalist, her communist ideas, her anti-imperialism don't seem to come up. So what, what's happened to the way that we remember? Well, you know, this is, you know, I guess it's the duality of these experiences. And if you look, think of somebody like Angela Davis today, it's the same thing. She's been vanity fair dressed, you know, and, and all of that, posing for photographs in a certain kind of way. So I think the black, you know, this is the whole question. And of course, you must have heard about this young white woman who has been impersonating being a black person. So blackness is both desired, but it's also abject, right? So you have those two things clashing all the time, where the blackness is negation and also, you know, also um, desire at the same time. So I think um, assertion, negation assertion, consistently working. So Claudia's position there, for sure. So, I mean, on the one hand, somebody like me, I'm happy whenever she gets representation because she was meant to be erased completely. So whenever somebody picks her up and shows her publicly in, in a certain kind of way, I'm happy about it. Um, and I know she is more known in terms of the carnival, but even so, there was even debate about, about giving her the status of, have, status of having the first carnival in London. So always there's this question then of, of having to reclaim her intellectual space. And it's actually to the kind of people like you, young scholars, who know this, so that we are able to take it forward. So in my, in my thinking then, there's always a continuum in terms of representation, right? So on the one hand, you have the sort of intellectual, scholarly understanding of her, the activist versions as well, and then the popular ones. So that's, that spread then is what, is what I guess one desires and where she's located. And we constantly have to find avenues like this one where we can fill in that information and make sure she's seen and heard. Now, I've had many people, and this is a lot of interesting debates with people in London saying, well, was she really communist? She was. Um, so that's one of the points that we have to keep stressing. She's buried left of Karl Marx. You know, so she, I mean, there's where, how, how much closer can you get than that, you know? So she was that for sure. But I think that in, in the UK, and this may be coming from, you know, the various forms of, of trying to manage her in the UK, was to sort of play down her communism and make her much more kind of palatable social figure, right? But all of her experiences were generated then. What I will say, though, is that once she is in London, she's not received in the same way by the Communist Party Great Britain, CPGB, as she was by CPUSA. So because of that, she has a greater reason and an impetus to really work with her own community. So she becomes much more of a pan-Africanist in London. But that doesn't mean that pan-Africanism and socialism are always in conflict. According to George Padmore, he uses or, you know, pan-Africanism or socialism. And in, in his view, pan-Africanism in its practice should carry all of those aspects of socialism in terms of creating societies which 
uh, not based on sort of capitalist exploitation, but allow people to live their best and fullest lives, which is how he would have defined it, sharing resources and so on. Claudia never gives up on those positions. So she moves in the U.S., and this is the point where she dies sadly, right? When she moves from the U.S., she becomes much more open to working directly and mainly with black community, creating those organizations like CACO, which do that, going to Japan and being a speaker against nuclear proliferation, going to China and meeting Chairman Mao, interviewing, um, you know, a number of women in China and so on, and traveling around and really understanding the place and, and what they try to do. So I think right at the point that she dies, she's shifting away from the sort of hardcore CPUSA Soviet framing of an identity and looking at it more in terms of the international um, issues that were coming out of the so-called third world or the global south and positioning herself there. And this is when she, we lose her. So just imagine, you know, the continuance that would have happened, you know, had we been able to have a few more years of her um, to contribute to our thinking. And when you reflect on Claudia Jones's history and her activism, where do you place her in the dichotomy of grassroots campaigner and uh, intellectual? Because she kind of fits into both. Because with her journalism, she was really speaking to those, the grassroots, those, um, the everyday black man and woman. But yet she also held a spot within this mm. academic field, with the circles that she was going in. So where, mm -hmm. where do you place her? I see her right there, and in fact, I was at, um, on a panel at Harvard in February before everything closed down. And one of the questions they asked people like me was like, "How do you, you know, how do you see yourself in terms of activism?" And one of the things I said is that there is already a black radical intellectual tradition into which many of our people who perceive this belong. And I place Claudia squarely as one of the women in that black radical intellectual tradition which combines activism and intellectual work in different degrees. Now, if you are a professor at a university doing intellectual work, your activism may come out differently. You may not be on the streets doing all the grassroots work, grassroots work as you indicate that some others would be doing, but you're similarly doing intellectual work that is identified as, according to Du Bois, challenging the ways in which we are positioned in the wake of what is called modernity, that's so, so we position negatively in terms of how the black body, the black subject is identified following enslavement, following colonialism, and so on, where we came into the new world then with this, with this objection as identified by enslavement, and then we still positioned like that because of colonialism, because of continuing global racism, and so on. So I am one of those people, I don't buy this logic that people only run into racism when they reach, when they reach the UK or come to America. Because these global racist paradigms are operating in those places all the time. Some people are not aware of them and some people are, right? So the knowledge that we acquire from people like her help us to really unpack and understand how we are located in society and how we challenge these intellectually on the ground in terms of grassroots planning, organizing, and so on. So there is a category then of the black radical intellectuals, which many of us and I see myself squarely as belonging to that. And in that black radical intellectual tradition, there's a Caribbean version. There's a Caribbean intellectual tradition as well that is activist, that has people like her, that has Claudia Jones, 
that has CLRJs, that has Sylvia Winter, that has a range of other subjects as well. So I belong to that, and I'm really proudly part of that tradition and see my, any contribution that I make to advancing that as part of that belonging to some sort of larger black radical intellectual tradition, which combines in different ways, practices in different ways, articulates in different ways, but through it all continues that process of unpacking how we are positioned in the wake of modernity and this so-called framing of our world in, in the contemporary period, still operating with global racist paradigms. Now, as someone who works within uh, a university, I wanted to talk to you about decolonizing the curriculum, because throughout my time uh, as a history student, very rarely did I ever, well, I, I wasn't taught by any non-white lecturers. I didn't uh, come across any black literature, except when I had to take my own initiative and uh, go and find uh, wow. these sources. And I wanted to know, from your perspective, how do universities decolonize um, completely and how can they use their studies to eradicate racism and also create a more inclusive society? I know, it's such a big deal. And I'm really happy um, to say that my university, um, and I've, I've talked about this consistently over the years in, because my field is literature, and I talked about Ngugi Wapiongo decolonizing the mind and his earlier work um, on the abolition of the English department and so on. So essentially my university uh, following the killing of George Floyd and the student um, protests and uprisings all around the world, the taking down of statues and so on, the, the recognition that global racism permeates so many societies, that police, police brutality is evident in many different locations and so on. Um, Coming out of that sense of helplessness, my colleague Mukoma and I came up with a proposal to have our department, the English department, change its name from Department of English to Department of Literature and English. And it actually passed. We put it forward to um, the first meeting um, of the semester um, last week, Wednesday, and it actually passed. And now it should go through the ranks of the levels of the university. So the question is, um, I would say one department at a time, because all of those departments carry the marks of, of, of um, colonial structuring in terms of faculty or the absence thereof, the subject matter that they teach, the courses they offer, and so on. So at every level, the institutions are already locked into institutional racism. And I was using, in my own presentation, a formation from Sylvia Winter, where she argues in a piece called No Humans Involved, an open letter to her colleagues at Stanford, that it is the university that reproduces racism and therefore reproduces it in terms of its teaching of students, maintains it, and those students go out into the world, again, reproducing racism in a very particular way. So for winter, it's we, the academicians, who she calls the grammarians of this epistemological order, who maintain the racial structures in our very teaching. And actually, Amos is there, the famous um, Martinican poet and activist, had made the same point when he said that philo within philosophy, you already have the structures of racial oppression, which then are acted out 
law in the larger context in terms of how the so-called Negro is defined, um, in terms of how black people are subjected to be defined as not on the equivalence um, of white of the white subject. So basically, we in the university have to always be self-questioning, and anytime we have an opportunity to do that kind of transformative work like we do now, to really take it forward, and hopefully we would have intellectuals who would be able to help um, advance some of those when they can. And students have a role. They have a role to push against those boundaries as well and, and challenge those institutions like my institution. Now the students have something called Do Better Cornell. <laughs> so you can have your institutions do the same thing. Do better Oxford, do better Cambridge, do better whatever. Um, I know there were movements created like why is my curriculum so white and so on. I think you all have to continue those. You don't have to give up. Different waves of students need to take it further and each group needs to take it further. And it's, keep in mind, this is a long process. Look at how long, I mean, I've been talking about decolonizing the English department. And then finally we're able to do it. And I like this point that CLR James makes, that there are conjunctural moments, that there are certain times in history when things come together, which therefore create the conditions for that qualitative leap that allows other things to happen. So we are in a conjunctural moment right now where people are more aware of global racism and therefore more apt to be able to do something that transforms it a bit. So if you can transform it enough for the other, it's not going to be revolutionary change, although this is what people like Stokely Carmichael wanted, but I don't see it. So essentially what one has to do is to find a way to transform these institutions bit by bit so that they become more habitable places for us and our future. Because you don't want your children to have to go through the same thing or your sisters and brothers and others coming after your neighbors coming after you. So one step at a time, one department at a time. If you're in anthropology, then you need to challenge them. Um, if you're in history, then they need to go forward and push it a little further. And this is what we are doing. Fortunately, our universities, after the George Floyd and so on, put out statements that said they have to create more just and equitable institutions. So we're taking that seriously. And finally, I wanted to ask you, in your assessment, with all the research you've done on Claudia Jones, what to you is her lasting legacy? Oh my God. Her lasting legacy is that she was able to live out and be such an amazing contributor to the thought that we carry today. The whole question of being a black woman in society. And, and just as Fanon talked about the lived experience of blackness, you have Claudia Jones talking about the lived experience of being a black woman in society. And therefore, um, Fanon has a quote um, at the end um, where he says, oh, my body, make of me a man who questions. I see Claudia Jones as that person saying, oh, my body, make of me a black woman who questions. So this to me is what she did. And this allows her then to enter history in the way that she has with such an amazing elegance as well, beauty and elegance and calm but ongoing activism and contribution to making us live in a society that is, you know, more reflective of what it should be in, in, uh, in any kind of estimation of what kind of life one should live. Carol Boyce-Davies, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Brian.
Welcome back. And that was uh, Carol Boyce Davies, a uh, scholar from uh, Cornell University, speaking on her uh, research and writing uh, related to Claudia Jones, uh, the African-Caribbean uh, writer, activist, communist, pan-Africanist. And this is part of our uh, African-American History Month uh, series. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal a worldwide radio broadcast for this Saturday, February the 17th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment for today's uh, Pan-African Journal. track entitled Just One Look. Uh, Doris Troy uh, had a birthday uh, just this last past week. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 17th, uh, 2024. And today is uh, the 82nd birthday of Dr. Huey P. Newton, 
the co-founder of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California in 1966. We're going to listen to an interview uh, with uh, Dr. Huey P. Newton uh, right after he was released from prison on August 11th of 1970 uh, is when this interview was done. And uh, he spent nearly three years in prison uh, for a manslaughter conviction uh, involving a shootout um, with uh, Oakland police officers, where one Oakland police officer was killed and another was wounded in October of 1967. Let's listen uh, to uh, this interview uh, with uh, Dr. Huey P. Newton, uh, done uh, on August 11th of 1970. I'm in the studio with Huey P. Newton. We have not had anything but your voice here before, Huey, and uh, now we have you. Uh, you've been inside for 33 months. Uh, when you went in, uh, it was rather a different world, both for black and white people, than it is now. And you have come out to uh, make your contribution to both the black and the white world. And I think that the way we'd better arrange this particular talk uh, is to go first into some of the very immediate things which uh, you find yourself facing and then perhaps return to some of the more basic things that you would like to share with the audience. Uh, one of the events which has happened uh, within the last six days since you've been out uh, is the very tragic situation in Marin County and uh, its effect on the Soledad brothers' case. It is my understanding uh, that uh, the Panthers are going to offer their support and perhaps you would like to tell us something about the events of the next few days regarding that specific thing. Uh, we won't only offer our support. The uh, Black Panther Party will administer the funeral. Uh, it will be a revolutionary funeral of uh, of uh, Brother uh, Jonathan Jackson and uh, Brother William uh, Christmas. And uh, uh, Brother McLean has been his body has been shipped to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, so the, uh, the Black Panther Party will administer and give uh, these uh, revolutionary comrades a revolutionary funeral, which they deserve. And uh, we're inviting uh, uh, the people uh, to the uh, funeral. Of course, uh, we would uh, be very happy if we have that support from the community. It will be encouraging to the family and to the revolution as a whole <clears throat> uh, because uh, I feel, we feel that uh, the event uh, that occurred in Marin was certainly a, a colossal event. And... Uh, it has changed the whole relationship uh, between the oppressed and the oppressor. The funeral will be held at St. Augustine Church on 27th and West Street uh, this Saturday at 9 o'clock. And uh, we're inviting everyone uh, uh, to come. Uh, we feel that uh, 
uh, because of the consciousness of uh, uh, the three comrades uh, who were killed, who were murdered, uh, that uh, the event uh, is even more important or was more important than uh, what occurred in uh, Watts, the Watts uh, uprising or the uh, even the Detroit uprising, which was a uh, sporadic, uh, 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 unorganized uh, uprising. Uh, it uh, lacked the consciousness and uh, certainly uh, lacked the uh, revolutionary fervor exemplified in the move of uh, uh, Brother Jonathan Jackson in particular. Uh, Brother uh, Jonathan Jackson, 17-year-old, uh, um, who... Uh, has no uh, had no prison record uh, whatsoever. Um, he acted strictly upon uh, a principle that uh, says that the uh, corrupt uh, racist uh, uh, lords uh, can make no law that the oppressed people are bound to respect. Well, it certainly has opened up this whole this whole Soledad case has opened up. Uh, a very much more close examination and I think awareness on the part of the whole community of the situations inside the prisons and inside the courtrooms. Uh, for example, uh, I believe it is true that the prosecuting attorney in this case was married to the niece of the judge. Yes. Uh, that I believe is technically uh, illegal and yet uh, this is the kind of thing which could happen normally, uh, and no one would know the difference. Uh, uh, if it had not been for the uh, shooting of the three black men at Soledad and the subsequent uh, murder of the white guard, uh, the conditions in O-Wing at Soledad would never have been known. In other words, it opens up the whole subject of political prisoners and the conditions inside our prisons, and perhaps you would like to comment on that. Uh, yes, it's historically correct as the struggle intensifies, as the battle uh, uh, intensifies, that uh, the evils of the oppressor is uh, focused upon. And this is why that uh, he time and time again uh, tries to define uh, the oppressed people and the revolutionaries who are the vanguard of the people's struggle and the people's interests uh, as criminals. The uh, bourgeoisie uh, would like uh, us to believe that, uh, that uh, a group of hoodlums or criminals uh, are the only people who would uh, use uh, certain methods uh, to liberate themselves. Uh, the bourgeoisie reserves the right to use force. Uh, and if anyone else uh, uh, uses force to, uh, in, in an attempt as a last resort to uh, gain his dignity and uh, secure his manhood, uh, then uh, uh, we're faced with the, we're bombarded with uh, the propaganda machine of the, uh, of the uh, mass media that's controlled, uh, that is an institution controlled by the bourgeoisie. Uh, the Soledad uh, brothers are also some very revolutionary brothers. They were uh, are framed up on uh, the execution of a policeman at Soledad uh, shortly after uh, three uh, blacks uh, uh, were killed uh, in, uh, a, uh, in the adjustment center and one white wounded. 
and this was a planned assassination, and there was much evidence, and uh, it was common knowledge among the prisoners exactly uh, uh, how the plot went. But uh, this was suppressed, and subsequently the, uh, the prison guard was given a justifiable homicide, uh, as always. Uh, uh, shortly after this, the guard was killed, and uh, which was a very revolutionary act. Uh, some patriots, uh, some members of the, uh, the People's Revolutionary Force uh, certainly did the act, but three Soledad brothers are innocent. They were framed up because of, of a long history of speaking out against the treacherous tactics of the, of the uh, prison guards. Uh, uh, George Jackson has spent uh, some 10 years in prison on a one-to-life. Normally, a person would get out in uh, two years uh, or two and a half years on a one-to-life. But because of his uh, uh, political consciousness, they felt him too dangerous to be on the street. Uh, perhaps he went into jail. I believe he went into jail for, excuse me, a strong arm robbery or, or some common crime, uh, which uh, probably has political overtones within itself. But uh, the prison kept him so long until he had the time to really become conscious. And this is when they uh, started to uh, be afraid to let him out if he had remained unconscious and loyal to their uh, capitalistic state, uh, then he would have certainly been out uh, some years ago. But I believe you also have uh, very specific views uh, on the subject of capital punishment, which is also a part of our prison system. Uh, yes, uh, the Black Panther Party plans to uh, send an open letter to the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, the gist of the thrust of the letter uh, would be that, uh, first of all, we realize that capital punishment is reserved for uh, poor people and uh, people of color. And uh, we c this is easily, uh, 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 we can easily uh, see this uh, when we examined uh, the uh, uh, death row and we see that only poor whites and uh, blacks and Mexicans uh, and other uh, colored uh, people or black people or people of color uh, reach the uh, reach death row. So it's strictly a class thing, and it's high time that someone uh, intervenes between the madman and the people. Uh, we uh, view the uh, judicial system uh, as a uh, as not only a, a corrupt uh, uh, institution that's there to preserve the status and the power of the bourgeoisie or those who own, uh, but also as a group of treacherous murderers. And uh, we uh, will uh, serve notice upon the Supreme Court uh, because uh, that something must be done, the death penalty must be uh, outlawed, or else uh, there will be a political consequence. We'll intensify the struggle and uh, and uh, we uh, will stop this uh, slaughter. Huey, uh, one of the things that you mentioned at your press conference, which has been widely uh, commented on and uh, which you didn't have a chance to go into in any depth, uh, was uh, your uh, suggestion that the Panther Party was going to send what you referred to as troops uh, to uh, Vietnam. Uh, yes. <clears throat> 
that uh, we have committed uh, um, a undisclosed, uh, undisclosed number of uh, troops uh, to the Revolutionary uh, People's Republic of Vietnam, uh, to the uh, National Liberation Front, the uh, Provisional Government in the South. Uh, we offer these troops and, uh, in the spirit of uh, revolutionary solidarity, and uh, we are awaiting a, a response. Uh, there's been some indication that the uh, response uh, uh, will be favorable. Uh, the Vietnamese people and the people of the world in general are very impressed, and uh, we feel justified uh, in committing these troops, uh, even though uh, we realize we have many problems here, uh, domestic problems. Uh, but uh, we feel that uh, because the oppressor also has uh, d domestic problems, and he still finds time to meddle in other people's business, uh, to slaughter people throughout the world, certainly we can find time to aid our friends. Well, uh, the question arises, um, what would the status of, of, of such people be? Uh, I've heard the word, it, wouldn't that be treason? Um, uh, uh, my understanding of treason is uh, when uh, uh, a... Uh, a patriot uh, aids the enemy uh, in, uh, under a condition of a de declared war and uh, giving aid and comfort to the enemy in a time of war. Yes, uh, and f the first thing that we view the Vietnamese people and certainly the American people view the Vietnamese people not as enemies but as friends. Uh, this, was, uh, this has been demonstrated uh, through the many uh, peace mobilizations uh, and also that uh, there's a uh, America has a history of committing uh, of of troops or American citizens fighting in foreign armies. Uh, uh, Americans fought in the the Spanish Civil War against the fascist Franco. Uh, there are Americans fighting now in uh, Israel uh, in the Israeli army. Uh, there were uh, Americans committed to the Can Canadian Army in World War II. And uh, only uh, at that time, uh, uh, the ruling circle saw it in their interest uh, to not to uh, prosecute or not to charge these men with, with treason. Uh, working from this, uh, we say that uh, it doesn't fall under treason because there's no declared war, number one. The war is illegal, and if they want to charge us with treason, we invite them to do so. Because in order to uh, to prove uh, treason, we would first have to put the war on trial to see if the war is a legal war, uh, and we would be very happy to do that. We're willing to make uh, any revolutionary sacrifice uh, necessary in order to advance uh, the uh, interests of the people of the world. In other words, you're not uh, worried about the idea that the people who went there uh, might lose their citizenship. No, of course not, because uh, the first thing that uh, we couldn't be uh, worried about the, uh, a, a simple thing such as an American citizenship when uh, the brothers who go there might lose their lives. So uh, our uh, concern is to, uh, is to uh, see that the, fasc the fascist imperialist uh, is whipped and driven uh, uh, back to his own country and we have friends everywhere we can hear the imperialist whip cr uh, crack. And uh, we view the developing countries of the world as uh, the countryside of the world. And uh, as one country...
country as uh, as one developing country uh, becomes free uh, and it advances the freedom of all of us uh, because until we choke the imperialist uh, raw material uh, which uh, he gets from the developing country, which he rapes and robs from the developing country, there will be no chance of liberation at home here. In other words, that we see a definite connection between our enslavement, uh, our exploitation, uh, and the exploitation of the Vietnamese people and the people of Cambodia, Thailand, Latin America, Asia, and, and Africa. Um, so we we intend not not only to send troops to Vietnam, but eventually we're willing to go anywhere in the world where we have comrades. Well, that brings me to the next subject I'd like you to discuss, and that is that the revolutionary movement all over the world has changed appreciably in the last three years um, among the white radicals, among the black people, among the third world people in general. Uh, I know that uh, during the time that you were inside, that you were aware of these things from a factual standpoint, uh, that you spent your time studying and uh, preparing yourself. Uh, but how does it strike you uh, now as you emerge to find a national, even an international movement among young people of all races all over the world? And where do you think it's going to go? Uh, it's definitely going to go to victory, and I'm overwhelmed with joy uh, that uh, I'm able to see uh, uh, the unity that is existing between the, uh, the, uh, uh, among the, uh, the people who are oppressed, oppressed not only nationally but internationally. Um, uh, we feel that uh, in order for us here in America uh, to eliminate the evils of the world, we must uh, eliminate imperialism and an international uh, bourgeoisie uh, that finds its strength here uh, in Babylon or uh, North America. In order to do this, the Black Panther Party takes a stand that our party is no longer uh, a uh, revolutionary nationalist party, but we're revolutionary internationalists. We're revolutionary socialists because we're fighting a, uh, an international uh, bourgeoisie, so necessarily uh, we would, our, uh, our uh, tactics and strategies would have to be based upon internationalism. Uh, that doesn't mean that we uh, reject or denounce other countries that uh, are fighting wars of national liberation. Um, countries such as Vietnam, um, we feel that has, have a right uh, for self-determination and uh, surely uh, uh, independence and uh, because, uh, uh, number one, <clears throat> that they've uh, never oppressed uh, uh, other countries. They don't operate an empire. They operate a country, while America is no longer a country, but it's an empire. So, therefore, we can't even speak in terms of nationalism because nationalism uh, perpetrated in this country has enslaved the world. This country has no right any longer to be a nationalist country. 
because it's, it's stolen the wealth from every developing country in the world in order to build a high standard of living here uh, for the ruling circle, that is. And uh, because of these evils, that uh, this country must, uh, must uh, think in terms of transforming the world and replenishing the world, sharing uh, with the developing countries in a friendship way and even uh, being obligated to them. Uh, obligated to them in the sense that uh, this country has been a pirate and a robber, and now uh, it's only justified that this country pays off. And this is why the uh, the uh, party, uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, is hooked up with uh, every struggling liberation front of the world because uh, only through this uh, unity uh, are we able to defeat such a powerful, uh, treacherous enemy. And you do not see it uh, either as a national uh, struggle purely, nor do you see it uh, as a racial struggle purely. Uh, it's not a, uh, uh, as far as this country is concerned, that uh, the struggle cannot even take a national character. Um, uh, it must be take an international character because uh, what you have is, is not a nation. It's an empire, so therefore we can't relate to it as something that it's not. Uh, as far as racism is concerned, that uh, we realize uh, racism is rampant in this country, and uh, we uh, this is why that uh, uh, in spite of the fact that we're working uh, towards a uh, socialist uh, socialist society, we're not under the illusion that this would automatically. Uh, wipe out racism. Uh, it's uh, known in sociology uh, that when a structure changes or physical structure changes or social structure changes, uh, usually uh, there's a lag between the attitudes or the values. It's called cultural lag. And uh, I'm sure this uh, concept would also uh, be true uh, if, uh, when we uh, receive our socialist victory. We'll lay the foundation or the structure to change the attitudes uh, but until that time, that we'll have to use certain precautions in order to protect ourselves from racism. And uh, some of these uh, way, some, uh, ways we'll work is to uh, ask for uh, some autonomy in our uh, community, uh, complete control, matter of fact, of our local community, uh, the institutions therein. Uh, we would like uh, to operate our institutions as uh, collectives or co-ops, you will, uh, owned by the whole community and supported by uh, the uh, national uh, enterprises that will be somewhat, that will be centralized, but a public, uh, excuse me, that uh, will be a, a public institution. For instance, uh, General Motors, uh, Standard Oil, and uh, the big monopolies, uh, the 76 companies that uh, control the American economy. According to the Johnson's uh, report on civil disorders, there are 76 uh, monopolies or oligarchies uh, that control the country. These will, uh, we would demand that on every level that uh, people of color be represented. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the various communities will place these uh, administrators in just as, uh, just as now uh, elections are held to place mayors in and so forth. Uh, the wealth uh, there will be no profit uh, uh, any longer. It would only be a surplus, and this surplus from these national enterprises will be distributed in some sort of equal way to the many ethnic uh, 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 minority communities. 
all of the communities uh, will receive uh, a proportion of the wealth. So we call this proportional, rep proportional representation in a socialist framework. If there's any, uh, if there's hap if there happens to be any whites living in the in the black community, or vice versa, or any uh, Mexicans or uh, Indians uh, or any uh, uh, ethnic uh, group member who uh, would be a minority living in any of the other uh, ethnic uh, communities, then he will have a democratic participation in these uh, institutions. Uh, in other words, that uh, we will uh, make sure that uh, a foundation will be laid uh, to work towards a society that will be essentially human, uh, a culture that will be essentially human, and a revolutionary culture, and that is a culture that's in, uh, that is dynamic and in, that is in constant change for the uh, uh, and with the well-being of uh, man in mind. Well, when you speak. Uh of revolution, uh, which uh, means uh, a number of things besides uh, guns, uh, I notice that that does not preclude in your mind uh, things that might be termed reformist in the sense, uh, for example, of the community police control bill. You are in favor of people working for that type of reform measure. Uh, yes, I believe that uh that uh, reform must be integrated with revolution. Uh, reforms are all right. Uh, reforms are good as long as they don't uh, uh, put up an obstacle to your final revolutionary goal. Uh, many times reforms aid the uh, revolutionary uh, uh, vanguard in mobilizing people against the oppressor. And uh, in Berkeley now, that uh, the Black Panther Party with uh, members of the Peace and Freedom Party uh, have worked to, uh, to uh, have the uh, police decentralized. Uh, we are on the ballot now. Uh, I believe it took some of what, uh, in the range of 15,000 signatures to get on the, battle, on the ballot. And uh, we made that with, e with ease. And I will ask uh, the community to support this. Uh, I would like to ask all progressive people to support the decentralization of the police uh, in Berkeley. This would be de the police would be decentralized into four uh, police departments: one for students, one for blacks, and uh, one for white. Um, this would uh, uh, the local community would uh, erect a board uh, to control uh, the police behavior and to examine it and to examine. Uh, complaints uh, from uh, the community about the police. Uh, uh, this way the police will lose that character of being uh, uh, like a foreign army that, that's occupying territory, who don't live in the territory, but they only are there to uh, ensure the interests of the wealthy or the property people in the area. Um, we feel that uh, that uh, this is a step in the right direction. It certainly uh, uh, is a necessary step, but it's not uh, sufficient. And we realize it for what it is as uh, a step in the right direction because the final victory will come when we're able to decentralize the wealth of uh, such institutions as Bank of America and General Motors and then make that wealth serve uh, the interests of the people and not serve the interests of the profit monger. Uh, this will be the final victory of the people, but uh, we must uh, fight each battle at, at a time. And uh, while uh, the police are only 
the uh, agents and the lackeys of the uh, of the uh, bourgeoisie and the uh, the the, uh, the big owners. Uh, we realize that uh, in order for uh, us to fight uh, these big owners, we must fight the ordinary uh, local police, uh, which is the local foot soldier. Just as the Vietnamese, in order to fight American imperialism, must fight the ordinary soldier who's only a lackey uh, for uh, the bourgeoisie and the ruling circle here in America. So, uh, and also uh, uh, that how students end up fighting certain uh, teachers who uh, support the reactionary uh, uh, designs, the action, reactionary uh, uh, regents, and uh, the governor, the uh, running dog, Governor Reagan. Uh, in order to, uh, to down Reagan, many of, much of the time, we have to uh, have conflict with uh, ordinary, uh, their ordinary protectors whether they're teachers, local police, or uh, the military, we have to deal with that. But we know the final victory and uh, the real meaningful uh, uh, victory uh, will be to uh, decentralize the wealth of the, uh, of the, uh, the rich oppressors. In other words, what you are saying is that you feel that reformism and revolution can and should go hand in hand in, in, in this society. Yes, as long as, or any other society, as long as uh, your reform does not, uh, uh, is not obstacle, does not put an obstacle in the way of your final goal. There are many reforms I could think of if handled uh, in the wrong way uh, would, uh, uh, would, uh, would, uh, make it uh, impossible or very uh, difficult uh, for you to achieve your revolutionary goal. Uh, we must make very sure that the, our reforms are well thought out and we explain to the people on the way uh, the significance and also the dangers of uh, accepting certain com compromises from the oppressor. Uh, as long as we don't try to drop a plan on the people's head and as long as we take their interest and consideration and give them time, uh, even though uh, much of the time they don't claim to be theoreticians or politicians uh, or scholars, uh, they don't understand, and we have to take a, uh, uh, take much, uh, sometimes we have to take much time, some revolutionaries think too much time to explain to the people, but we've, the Black Panther Party has, has found that uh, after taking this time, it, it pays off. Uh, because we move even faster uh, than we would have if we had attempted to just conclude, uh, uh, make conclusions for the people and go ahead without their support and without their uh, uh, help. That brings me to another question. How, uh, Huey, do you visualize the development of the Black Panther Party? There's been a good deal of discussion as to whether or not uh, this was a mass party or whether it was simply uh, going to be an elitist leadership cadre uh, focusing on education and so on, but not having uh, a mass membership. Well, um, those I don't think those terms that will fit squarely into either of the uh, of the uh, of the terms that you've just given, because our party uh, is a vanguard party, but the strength is based upon the mass support. And uh, we uh, are we work uh, directly with the people in many uh, programs. We're starting a shoe uh, program where we will sh uh, 
uh, makeshoes when I was in prison. Uh, um, I found that uh, many inmates uh, became very expert and uh, many convicts became very expert in making shoes and uh, boots. And uh, these shoes are used uh, to shoe the uh, prison population and also they're sold to uh, other government agencies. Of course, the prisoners only get two cents an hour for this. But uh, the point I'm attempting to make is that uh, the community, many of the people in the community here in the north and the south, the children go without shoes in the south and Beaufort County. There's a tremendous problem of parasites. Uh, the people, uh, as soon as uh, they're cleaned up, uh, the parasites have gotten out or driven out of their stomachs uh, or they're cured. Uh, they pick up parasites again because they don't have shoes and they walk on the ground and pick them up. So we plan to buy, uh, with the help of the people, uh, to uh, lease or buy an old shoe factory and uh, uh, put ex-convicts into these shoe factories. Uh, and the convicts will teach the people in the community uh, how to make the shoes. And uh, a shoe, a, a work shoe, uh, can be made for about a dollar and a half uh, or two dollars. And uh, we plan to uh, re not only repair, but to make shoes and shoe the children and the adults in the community and the South. Uh, so uh, the, the party is uh, uh, a vanguard party, so therefore we don't uh, expect uh, 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 millions of people to be in membership. But uh, it's not a club or, or anything like that. And uh, really, we have millions of people in because everyone, uh, we're working for the people's interests and everyone who sympathizes and supports and uh, does anything, uh, we uh, uh, view him as a member. And uh, he's certainly a member of the oppressed uh, class and therefore, uh, necessarily, he's the backbone of the revolution. Uh, I think that uh, this is almost a classical thing if we if we observe uh, other revolutions in other uh, countries that uh, all of in in every uh, case that most of the people in the country were not uh, 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 a member in the sense of holding office in the revolutionary band, but. Uh, uh, the revolutionary band was so dependent on the people until they uh, would say that uh, they could not be tracked by the uh, regular army because uh, when they were with the people, they were like a fish in the sea. And uh, we must be like that. We must, uh, the community uh, uh, must support us to the point uh, that when we're uh, being pursued, they will give us aid without asking too many questions uh, because much of the time there's no time for such questions. Um, I would like to back up a little and uh, say something else about uh, Marin. Um, I named uh, the uh, three uh, brothers who uh, who were uh, killed. Uh, there's a fourth brother, uh, a comrade, a revolutionary who's in the hospital uh, by the name of uh, McGee, uh, uh, Rochelle McGee, and that uh, we have him in mind and that uh, uh, I'm asking the people to support in every way. Um, we also want to make a charge uh, that uh, the revolutionary people are never interested in murder, that uh, it's only the oppressor who's interested in murder, and this was demonstrated in Marin because the revolutionaries did not, did not uh, fire the first shot. They were interested in... Uh, and, uh, 
getting out uh, of the prison. Uh, the statement was made that uh, by uh, one of the uh, comrades that uh, I've been imprisoned uh, so many years, too many years, that uh, uh, remove these chains. Uh, I must be set free, so help me God. And he addressed the jury and said this, and uh, it was really uh, an explanation to the jury on uh, why he had to take certain actions. And this is uh, incumbent, this is uh, a revolutionary's obligation to always explain, explain his action uh, to the people and uh, so that they will know and uh, that uh, they were interested in that and uh, taking hostages and uh, they would have released the hostages. They wanted freedom. But uh, the police uh, have stated, uh, Matthews, uh, the prison guard, who stated that he fired the first shot. Uh, there's some uh, contradiction because uh, the uh, district attorney uh, has said, Thomas has said that he fired uh, uh, the first shot. But uh, no one, uh, everyone is aware that the revolutionaries uh, did not uh, uh, fire the first shot. Jonathan, uh, 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 William Christmas, or uh, McLean uh, did not fire the first shot. So that shows that uh, the police, the uh, the fascist police, are responsible for the judge's death, and uh, the fascist police are are responsible for showing a disregard for everyone in that courtroom, including the jury. And uh, I hope that the people see uh, that. Welcome back. Uh, excerpts from an interview done uh, over uh, WPFW in uh, the Bay Area in California with Dr. Huey P. Newton uh, right after his release from prison, having served uh, nearly three years uh, in the California uh, prison system, uh, convicted of manslaughter in regard to the death of a Oakland, uh, California police officer. And that's going to conclude uh, our program for today. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for uh, Saturday, uh, February the 17th, the birthday of uh, Dr. Huey P. Newton, uh, the 82nd birthday, 2024. And if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at uh, uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out with the music of the Harold Land Quartet at the Cellar from 1958. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Interested in jazz? The name of Harold Land should ring a bell with you because Harold has appeared with all the greats of jazz in the United States. <laughs> we are very privileged to welcome the Harold Land Quartet.